2: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with psychology writer Maria Konnikova about her career and about her fascination with con artists. She explains why so many people fall prey to confidence games.
3: A lot of what makes us human is the exact same thing that makes us victims.
2: Here's Debbie Millman.
0: Imagine this scene. A person, crying, seemingly lost on a busy street. You approach and ask, what's wrong? He tells you an upsetting story about himself and his circumstances, and it makes you want to help. But in reality... You are about to be conned. Maria Konnikova's new book, The Confidence Game, dissects some of the world's greatest cons and tells us about the men and women behind them. Maria Konnikova is a contributing writer for The New Yorker. Her work has appeared in The New York Times, The Atlantic, Salon, and many other publications. Today I'm going to talk to her about her book and her fascination with psychology and storytelling. Maria Konnikova, welcome to Design Matters.
3: Thank you so much for having me, Dummy.
0: Maria, I understand that the first book you ever wrote was in Russian. (laughs) It was five pages long, and it had something to do with trolls. Yes, (laughs) yes,
3: this is all correct. (laughs) When and why did you write it? Um, So we came to the United States when I was four years old, and I didn't speak a word of English, Um, and it wouldn't be for another six months or so, actually even a little bit longer, I'm bad with dates, that I would start kindergarten and had no idea what was going on around me, didn't know what any of the kids were were up to. But there were trolls. They um, were trolls. Yeah. Trolls were really, really big. And everyone had these troll dolls. You know, they were kind of this brownish color and they had these-
0: The big hair. Yeah,
3: the big hair. And we couldn't. we were really poor. We had no money. We couldn't afford trolls. I didn't have a troll. So I decided I was going to make a book about my very own trolls. Um, I do not remember what it's about, but I'm sure that my mom kept it. I'll, oh, need, to, I'll need to look I it up. I was going to ask. That would
0: be amazing to see. Oh my gosh. I have
3: a vague recollection of Trying to draw the hair, and then I made a friend. Um, I started, you know, being able to speak a few words of English, and my uh, my friend taught me how to draw the hands, the troll hands. Wow. So I remember sitting and practicing how to do the troll hands. So I know it was about trolls. Okay, definitely need to see <laughs> this
0: five page book. <laughs> so as you mentioned, you were born in Moscow, Russia, and you came to the United States when you were four. Now you grew up in Massachusetts. Is that correct? I did?
3: Yes. So I grew up in. Um, a small suburb of Boston, about 40 minutes outside the city. Um, there were not very many immigrants there. It was very kind of old New England right next to Concord. So I grew up with the you know Minutemen and the old North Bridge and the shot heard around the world and all of that um, and spent all of my time there until college and then I stayed in Boston for college.
0: You lived in Moscow before the fall of the Berlin Wall, yeah. but were only there for a few years. Do you have any memories of what it was like to live there?
3: Um, I do, actually. And I think that it's because knowing what I know now as a psychologist about memory, I think it was because it was quite traumatic to leave. You know, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on. And we know that emotion really heightens memory retention. I remember what our apartment was like. I remember decorating the New Year's tree because in, in Russia, it was all secularized. As soon as it became communist, there were no more religious holidays. So. Um, I'm Jewish, but all the Jewish holidays were outlawed. All the Christian holidays were outlawed. So, how, did, was, how were you allowed to have a Christmas tree? It was not a Christmas tree. It was a New Year's tree. It's a new tradition that the communists invented and that still exists to this day. So you have a tree on New Year's, and that's what everyone celebrates as a totally secular holiday. And so you have Father Frost um, and his assistant who's this – Waif of a not not like Mrs. Claus. She's like this waif tall blonde snowflake. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, And that's the holiday that everyone celebrates. And so we had a New Year's tree. And to this day, we have a New Year's tree.
0: When your family first came here, they had no money, no connections. How did your family make a living?
3: My mom is an extraordinary woman. She is my role model in everything. So my parents got divorced when I just came here. And I call my stepdad my dad. Um, He's an incredible man. And my parents got together when I was six going on seven. But before that, my mom was a single mother in this country. We had a one-bedroom apartment. And then my grandparents came from Russia to live with us. The thing is, I never remember being poor. She never made us feel like we didn't have any money. I mean, in retrospect, I remember my first new dress. It was in fourth grade. What kind I remember of dress was it? It was a denim dress from this Ooh. store called The Children's Place. It was this sleeveless denim thing with this big denim skirt. And it was to the ground when I first got it. And by the time I finally stopped wearing it, it was like a mini dress, <laughs> a mini skirt. Um, <laughs> but she's just a very strong woman who, you know, she found a job and she made it happen. And we became middle class within 10 years. Extraordinary. I I feel incredibly lucky. You graduated magna cum laude from Harvard University, so your mom did really, really well. She did. She did. But you know what? My sister's the doctor. My sister's the MD-PhD, so she did even better. (laughs) (laughs) In any case... Uh, Before
0: going on to get your PhD, you worked at Young and Rubicam. This would really surprise me. You worked at Young and Rubicam and Saatchi and Saatchi as a copywriter. Based on the work that your body of work now, it seems almost impossible that that's what you'd have wanted to do.
3: I didn't. But picture being 21 years old. And everyone around you knows exactly what they're doing and they're going through corporate recruiting. They're becoming investment bankers. They're becoming consultants. They're going to law school. They're going to med school. They're going to all of these different things. Harvard is a place where people know where they're going. And I am sitting there saying, I want to write. And it's a really scary feeling. Not having a plan and not having any safety net and I had no connections. So everyone at Harvard, not everyone, but there were people like me, but most people who wanted to go into the arts, they had family connections. You know, they were not generation zero in this country. So I, I always had, you know, I worked at a law office. I did this. I did that. You know, I made money. I could never, I could never take a job that didn't pay me anything and advertising. They were looking for people. I said, oh, I can write. I can put together a portfolio um, and they'll actually pay me. I was miserable. I didn't realize. I thought copywriter, you get to write, right? And now people, you know, they've seen Mad Men. And so they think that's advertising is this glamorous thing. It's not. I mean, you don't really get to be creative, as a, especially when you're a young copywriter, when you're fresh out of college. And so then I quit. I thought. It, but I'm not a quitter, so maybe it's Young and Rubicum. Maybe I actually love advertising and just don't like Y&R. So I went over to Saatchi, quit within a month. Um, and You then got a job working for Charlie Rose. Well, first I was a bartender. Okay. And I bartended and wrote because, you know, I was going to be a writer. And I realized I couldn't write. I couldn't be creative like that because I was exhausted because bars closed so late in New York. By the time I was home, it would be past 5 a.m. And so then, you know, by the time I woke up, I'd have two hours before I had to go back to the bar. Um, so I quit. And then I went to work for Charlie Rose. How did you get the job with Charlie now finally I had connections. So I was on the Harvard alumni list. There were lots of Harvard people working at the show and I saw this o- job opening. And so I applied and met Charlie and we got along really well. You um, ended
0: up producing hundreds of show segments and yeah. went on to become the lead producer.
3: Um, yeah, I did. I did the Charlie Rose Science Series. Um, a lot of really, really interesting stuff, but it was very all-consuming. Um, I stopped working on my own writing, and I really, it was very emotionally difficult for me to do that, which is why eventually I ended up calling it quits. In 2008,
0: you decided to go back to school. You went to Columbia University where you got a Ph.D. in psychology. At that point, were you intending to become a psychologist?
3: No. At that point, I was intending to become a writer. And I was deciding between, (laughs) on a story, between an MFA and a Ph.D. And I decided, you know what? I'm so interested in the human mind. And I have the opportunity to study and to have time to write and work on my writing and be paid for it. Or I could go into a lot of debt that I don't know if I'll pay off. So I decided that I didn't really need the MFA because I had learned a lot as an undergrad and I felt like the best way to learn was to keep writing. And the PhD would be intellectually stimulating. And so I went in with the knowledge that this would be a five-year kind of respite where I could get my thoughts in order, think Write and really grow. That's exactly what happened. I ended up going on book leave while I was doing my PhD. I sold my first book. I almost didn't go back. Really? Yeah, yeah.
0: What made you decide to go back?
3: My mom. Good decision,
0: good decision, good decision. Jew- Jewish mother. I really believe in finishing things. Your first book, Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes, was published in 2013. It was a New York Times bestseller. Congratulations on your Thank first you. book becoming a New York Times bestseller while you're still in school. It's been translated into 17 languages. Why Sherlock Holmes? Was there a way in which he thought that you believe is and should be replicable?
3: Well, um The original reason why Sherlock Holmes actually goes back to a piece about mindfulness, and this was before mindfulness became a buzzword. You know, we're talking back in 2010, 2011, where people didn't really know what mindfulness was. And I was writing about a study of mindfulness, and I was trying to think, well, what's a good way to explain this to people back when you still needed to explain it to people? And the scene that came to my mind then was this scene from Sherlock Holmes from A Scandal in Bohemia where Holmes asks Watson how many steps lead up to 221B Baker Street, and Watson doesn't know. That is mindfulness because that difference that Holmes goes on to explain between seeing and seeing and observing – And not only did I find that it was perfect for what I was trying to illustrate, but it made me want to reread all of the stories. And as I did it, I said, this is a treasure trove. There's so much going on here. And it's such an illustration into the mind and into the ways that we can use our minds to be more mindful, to be more present. And that's why I decided to write the book. So it was really, I think, an accident.
0: How important was Watson to Sherlock Holmes? You've written quite a lot about him as well. You've stated that everyone should actually cultivate their own inner Watson.
3: Why? I think there cannot be a Sherlock Holmes without Watson. If you read the stories, Holmes becomes a much better detective throughout the stories because he has someone to talk all of his ideas through with. So he doesn't just think them. He's not just operating in a vacuum, he has to figure out why he thinks the way he does and explain it in a way that Watson can understand it. He has a foil. you know. He has someone who's constantly there, not just to bounce ideas off of, but someone who says, I don't get it. How did you do this? And that forces a kind of introspection that allows you to improve in a way that you can't if you're just in your own little bubble. I think we all need that sort of Questioning that sort of interaction, that thing that forces us to be a better version of ourselves. Otherwise, it's quite easy to just plateau. And at some point, if you've plateaued, then you're going to start getting worse because the world around you doesn't plateau. It keeps changing. So if you aren't growing, if you're at the same exact level, relatively speaking, you're getting worse. Right after
0: Mastermind was published, you became a contributing writer for The New Yorker, and you now write a weekly blog focusing on psychology and science. How did you get that job?
3: I had met some of the editors through various things. and By this point, um, I had my regular thing at Scientific American, but I was freelancing very consistently. And so I had a few cover stories for different magazines. And so I approached one of the editors that I'd met before and asked if I could pitch stories. He said, sure. Eventually, it ended up working out.
0: A recent column is titled, How People Learn to Become Resilient. I've become obsessed with this. In the article, you write, resilience presents a challenge for psychologists. Whether you can be said to have it or not largely depends not on any particular psychological test, but on the way your life unfolds. If you're lucky enough to never experience any sort of adversity, we won't know how resilient you are. It's only when you're faced with obstacles, stress, and other environmental threats that resilience or the lack of it emerges. Do you succumb or do you surmount? Maria, what are the key components to whether you succumb or surmount?
3: That's the, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? And, <laughs> Hi, please answer it for me. Please tell me. Please tell me. And the people, the psychologists who study resilience have been trying to figure that out for decades at this point. And the best evidence we have is that there are two main buckets. One of them is kind of a matter of luck in terms of, you know, do you happen to have someone you can trust? Is there a, a support figure, whether it's in your family or a teacher, or someone in the community who acts as an anchor to you, to whom you can go, who's there for you. And I say that's luck, because that's not something that's in you, that just, you know, you, you have it or you don't. You don't really cultivate it. It just happens. And we know that when that happens, children can be more resilient, and they become much more likely to get out of really terrible circumstances. The other bucket of skills is internal, and it has a lot to do um, with how you see the world. How do you frame it? So how do you understand the things around you? Do you understand them as really terrible um, and just things that are life-ending Or do you see them as, you know, just a fact of life and something that you have to work through? So I, let me go back to the beginning of our interview when I said I never felt poor. Well, that wasn't my resilience. That was my mom's resilience. The way that she framed these things to us, I never realized, oh, I don't have any new clothes. These are all hand me downs. And of course I did on some level in the sense that you have rich kids at school who taunt you. But I still, you know, I felt like we were just fine. Now, if she had framed it differently, like, oh, look at what those people have. You know, we're so poor and this is so terrible. Then that would have taught me a very different outlook. Shame. Yeah. And that would not have been a resilient outlook. That would have been something that you don't want to be who you are.
0: I might be misinterpreting or misrepresenting Mm -hmm. the article, but I got the sense while reading it that even if you are resilient Mm – over the course of a life, something could happen to tip you into being no longer resilient, which terrified me.
3: Yeah, the best way that I can think to describe it is as an equation in chemistry that needs to be balanced. And so you have your resilience on the one hand, and then on the other hand, you have the adversity. It's a scale. And as long as the resilience is stronger, you'll be okay. And your resilience is not a fixed quantity. There can be more of it in response to more stressors. But if just everything goes wrong, if you grow up in an underprivileged socioeconomic background and you have an abusive parent and the other parent's a drug user and you get through all of that and then you finally, you know, you find a partner in life and your partner commits suicide and then you get cancer. You're you're You're, per- you're done. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. so when that side of the equation gets too heavy, people who were resilient can reach a breaking Surrender. point. Everyone has a mental breaking point. It's not like resilience is some sort of magical.
0: Haunt. So it's not really a personality trait.
3: It's not. It's not at all. It's really it's, more perception. Yes. It's all about how you learn to describe the world. And some of that is genetic. Some of that is kind of ingrained, but a lot of that is learned. And a lot of it has to do with this term locus of control. Where do you see control residing? If you see it as internal, you're much more likely to be resilient, which means I have agency. I have control. I can change these things. The world's not happening to me. So it's a
0: little bit narcissistic too then.
3: Yeah, there is is a little bit of that. Um, Whereas if you have an external sense and you say, you know, shit happens. (laughs) Um, And sometimes it's good to say that um, when it's – when it really does just happen and you don't blame As yourself. A God, yeah, so to exactly. Speak. Exactly. But knowing that the true locus is inside you, that you can actually affect change yourself is incredibly powerful. And there's a lot of research that shows that locus of control can really help people not just in underprivileged situations or when we're talking about resilience, but things like entrepreneurism. It can help you be more successful. Well, that's uh, when agency really exactly. matters. Exactly all sorts of different areas of life where you find that the internal locus really helps you surmount. And that once again, though, that has to do with perception. It's all about mental framing, which to me is actually a very powerful thing, because it does allow you to see and think ways out of situations rather than say, there's nothing I can do. There's always something you can do. You can always change the way you're thinking about something.
0: Let's talk about your brand new book, The Confidence Game, Why We Fall For It Every Time. I understand you first fell for this topic after seeing David Mamet's film, House of Games, with Leslie Cruz giving one of the great performances of her life. Yes. So this is really how you did come to write the book. Yes.
3: And I actually, I tried to think of a different origin myth because I didn't want to be saying, oh, I I watched a movie and it made me think of a book. But it's an amazing (laughs) movie. But that's actually exactly what happened. Um, My husband and I decided, you know, let's watch this. We both love... Mammoth movies. We love cons. He's obsessed with them. And I was just blown away, both by the character. I really identified with her. She does such a good job making you see, you know, she's a s- smart, successful woman. You know, she's someone you aspire to be. Absolutely. She's you want kind of, to be her. Yeah, most of the movie. exactly. She's this role model. And the fact that she, she was one step ahead or so we think, and she thinks she knows everything that's going on. I was like, yeah, you go girl. And then at the end, I was like, oh no, no, this is terrible. It's Um,
0: such a painful movie in so many ways. It is. It is. Profound and painful.
3: And it's so well done because Mamet accomplishes something that modern media, and I'm not just talking about film, I'm talking about media more broadly, hardly ever does, which is make the victim sympathetic rather than the con artist. Because it's so easy to do the glamorous con man and then the victim, you say, schmuck, schmuck. You know, right? Mark. We could have figured that exactly. One out. Exactly. Sucker. All these terrible things. I mean, if you think about how we think about the victims of con artists, we're not sympathetic to them. We say, oh, you can't fool an honest man. Oh, they must have been greedy. Something must have gone wrong. They um, had hope. And hope that's an exa-
0: one of the biggest problems that and that's we ex- have.
3: And that's exactly right, which is not bad. It's good. Right? And that's what that movie captured. But I couldn't quite put my finger on it. At the time, I just wanted to know more, and there was nowhere to learn more. There was no book about how this happens, why it happens. If it could happen to her, it can happen to me. <laughs> it can happen to anyone. You've been asked many, many times in
0: many, many interviews <laughs> if you've ever been conned, and your response is, you don't know.
3: Yep. You, yep. you
0: might have been such a good con that you don't know that you've ever or never been conned.
3: Absolutely, and I think that's true of most people. I've
0: been conned. <gasps> Tell me. I was conned. The first year I came to New York City, I'm a native New Yorker, but I had never lived in Manhattan until Uh I graduated college. And it was the winter after I'd graduated. So it was January 1984. I'd been in New York about three or four months. I was so broke that I had to decide what I was going to use the money that I had for, paying rent, paying for my student loan, or eating. And I was in a really bad place. I had $400 to my name. That's all I had. I was coming from an interview. I was desperate to find a job. It was winter. I was wearing a big puffy coat and heels, but I had walked on those pumps so much that the heels were worn down, and rather than the rubber tips, they were steel tips. And so it was very, very hard for me to walk on what was really icy sidewalk. I got pushed over by someone. Two women came to my rescue and made some disparaging remark about the person that sort of pushed me by accident, but maybe not, and then walked away and didn't even stop to help me. They both stopped to help me. I didn't know that they knew each other. And the con began. It was an all-afternoon con, wherein one of the women... Then showed me a wallet that was filled with money. And she had found it and didn't know what to do about finding this wallet. Classic.
3: Classic.
0: The magic wallet. wallet. So you know, you know, it's a classic con. And I got conned into somehow giving them my $400 to somehow get some of the money that was in their wallet. And I was supposed to go meet somebody that they knew. And I went to the office where I was supposed to meet this person who was then going to give me some of the money. And of course, I walk into this office and I'm like, is so-and-so there? And they're like, who? And I knew. And then I didn't realize because I'd had this envelope that felt like there was money in it that was in exchange for the money that I had because of the serial numbers. And God only knows what the actual thing was that I believed with all of my heart and all of my soul. And I thought, well, at least I still have the money in the envelope. And then I opened the envelope and it was newspaper. It was newspaper. I lost everything. Oh, no. And I didn't have to tell anybody because I was so ashamed. Of course. How could I have been
3: conned? Well, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. I want to take away the shame and I want people to feel empowered, not to feel like marks, but to feel like victims. Because think of the difference in the terminology. Mark is very impersonal. You are just, you know, you've got a bullseye on your head and you're just another thing that that's in my way. Victim gives you, I think the power to say, yeah, this happened to me. And it wasn't because I was greedy or stupid or anything like that. It could have easily been you because we look at you, you are remarkably smart, accomplished. You know, you are.
0: (laughs) It's all interpretation, right? Maria? Anybody listening to this podcast like what a moron. She fell for the wallet con when she was twenty one. But
3: but it happens. I mean I write about a woman who went on to become a senior editor at Scientific American, got a PhD in sociology who fell for three-card Monty on her first day in Manhattan. And that was scary.
0: Yes, and then the wonderful art dealer who was conned yeah. by the forgeries. Yeah. This quote in the book actually gave me some sense of redemption. <laughs> I want to read it because it's so beautifully Absolutely. written and such a wonderful quote. The real confidence game feeds on the desire for magic, exploiting our endless taste for an existence that is more extraordinary and somehow more meaningful. But when we're falling for a con, we aren't actively seeking deception, or at least we don't think we are, as long as the desire for magic, for a reality that is somehow greater than our everyday existence remains, the confidence game will thrive. And I know that's what I wanted. I just wanted a better possible future. It really, but it was, I think, motivated by greed because I wanted more money than I had and I wanted it to come in an easier way than I'd been able to fathom.
3: Well, yes and no. I mean, as you analyze it now, you can say, well, it was greed. But in the moment, I don't think it was greed. Oh, you, hope. yeah, you trusted Gambling. these, you trusted these women. They always phrase it in ways that it's perfectly legitimate and that the only thing that you're doing by turning over your money is it's a show of confidence, <laughs> of trust in them. So you're being a good person. Hard. Um, <laughs> yeah. and no, but that's actually, that's how it works psychologically. And if, if someone is truly greedy, I think it would be very, very difficult to get them to part with $400.
0: You describe the confidence game, the con, as an exercise in soft skills, trust, sympathy, and persuasion. And you state that the true con artist doesn't force us to do anything. He makes us complicit in our own undoing. He doesn't steal. We give. He doesn't have to threaten us. We supply the story ourselves. We believe because we want to, not because anyone made us. And so we offer up whatever they want, money, reputation, trust, fame, legitimacy, support. And we don't realize what is happening until it is too late. Our need to believe to embrace things that explain our world is as pervasive as it is strong. Given the right cues, we're willing to go along with just about anything and put our confidence in just about anyone. Maria, why do we do this? Why do humans do this?
3: This sounds so depressing when you read it like that. I actually think it sounds awesome. (laughs) Um, Well, I think that we do it for, for a few different reasons. One that I was actually really at first very surprised to find is that we're wired to trust That's our default state. Isn't that interesting? It was really interesting. And after I did the research and explained it, it's it's intuitive. You understand why it's the case because for society to move forward, we need to forge bonds with one another. We need to trust one another. That's how you build communities, how you can protect each other. I mean, we sleep. You know, we spend so much of our time sleeping. Someone needs to protect us. You know, you need to trust that that person's not going to kill you. And you see all of this research that shows that trust goes along with intelligence, health happiness better life outcomes and socially that societies with higher levels of trust end up doing better economically and that makes a lot of sense once you think about it but it also means that when someone's out to deceive us we're much less likely to question it so i think that's one part of it and the the other part of it is it's not just that we want to believe and i think that's true we all have this positivity bias about ourselves and about the world that we are slightly better than average or a lot better than average at everything. One of my favorite studies in the book, it's just one or two sentences was about um, a group of researchers who went to a hospital and interviewed people who had just gotten into car accidents. And over two-thirds of them had caused the accident. And they asked them the, how good a driver are you? And almost everyone said, I'm far above average. And these were people who just caused an accident. <laughs> there was no difference whether or not they'd caused it or, or been the victims of it. And that, just, that illustrates how strong that bias is. And so when we think if something's too good to be true, it probably is, we only apply it to other people. When it comes to ourselves, nothing's too good for us. You write at length about the dark triad of
0: confidence games and how a con artist's brain is actually different than that of a normal person, so to speak. Can you elaborate on the dark triad?
3: Absolutely. So the first the first element of it, which is what makes the brain a little bit different, is psychopathy. And not all, by the way, it's a Venn diagram, so not all con artists are psychopaths. I think that they... They have some of the dark tribe, but not necessarily all three. Um, And psychopathy is a lack of empathy. Um, You're not experiencing emotions the way that other people do. So you don't feel guilt. You don't feel remorse. You know, the women who took your $400 don't think anything of it. So they
0: don't start feeling bad for doing anything to you that's harmful.
3: Yes. By the way, those women were probably not psychopaths because women... Are almost never psychopaths, but they might have been <laughs> desperate for their own money <laughs> absolutely, but that illustrates the point. It allows you to take advantage of people because you really feel absolutely no remorse whatsoever about doing so and the second part of it is narcissism, which isn 't just what we think of as narcissism, which is in my mind overblown ego it 's also a sense of entitlement, so I say, you know what? That $400, it rightly belongs to me. I'm not stealing it from you. It, I'm just going to take it because I deserve it more. It's going to be better in my hands. And so I, I write about some imposters who steal PhDs, who steal medical credentials, who steal all sorts of credentials. The teacher
0: that went around
3: <laughs> pretending
0: he was a physics PhD,
3: school after school after school. It's unbelievable. And people gave him tenure. I want tenure. <laughs>
0: And he seemed and, to have the pick of the litter between absolutely. Utah and Colorado
3: and it's oh, incredible. Yeah. But his thought process is I'm smarter than the people with the PhDs. Why not just take one? Why do I need to work for it? And when I he was finally caught, he was, well, you, you, the system allowed this to happen. Exactly. I exactly. didn't do anything wrong. It, it was the system. It wasn't me. And he, you know what? He's right. <laughs> he did do something wrong, but he's right that the system allowed it to happen. And then the final part of it is Machiavellianism. And those are your soft skills that you and I were talking about, the soft skills of persuasion. Can I manipulate you and get you to do what I want you to do, but without your realizing that I'm manipulating you so that you think that you're doing what you want to do? No one wants to be manipulated. No one likes being manipulated. If I sense that you're manipulating me, I'm going to bristle. I'm going to be actually really upset. I'm not going to do what you want. But if I think that I'm doing it myself – Well, then I'm very happy to do it. I'm so smart. I had this brilliant idea. You know, why don't I give you $400? (laughs) Um, And and that's what they're so brilliant at. I think most, if not all, con artists are Machiavellians because you almost have to be. That's how you get others to put their confidence in you.
0: You've stated that it's a thin line between con artist... And good advertiser, good marketer, good politician, good lawyer, and there's so many professions that use these sorts of techniques all the time. So, what is the line? What is that thin line? Where does it? Where do you go from being an advertiser to being a con artist?
3: Um, in my mind, that line is intention. Okay. So what was your intention? Is it malicious? Are you going in to deceive on purpose? Um, are you doing it for your own ends? Or do you actually believe in what you're doing? Do you think you're making people's lives better? Are you, You know, you're doing your job. You're doing it to the best of your ability. And really, your motives are pretty decent. And sure, you exaggerate some claims here and there. Who doesn't? But it's coming from a good place. You know, you really think that people – will feel better if they use Dove Soap. It's a good product. Then you're just an advertiser. Now, if you're one of those people who knows exactly what's going on and you're going in with a malicious intention, well, then you're the original snake oil salesman, which is a con artist. So there are con artists within all of these professions, but there are also legitimate people. And I think that that's where that line is. I read that
0: when you were done writing The Confidence Game, you went through a period of really mistrusting people. Um, but you want people to come away from the book feeling optimistic. Mm-hmm. How how did you overcome your mistrust to get to that optimism?
3: Well, I had to realize that, you know, I spent three years of my life with the bad actors, interviewing the people who are the con artists and the victims. So I, I really was immersed in this culture of deception and of deception that ruins lives. It's really easy to forget that these people are not nice. These are really bad individuals who really literally ruined lives. I mean, I talked to people who tried to commit suicide. I talked to family members of people who did commit suicide after being conned. I mean, we can't forget that it has a really deep emotional toll. And that's, I think, why I was so depressed at the end of this. And then I realized that, yes, but this is such a tiny minority of the population still. And yes, they are out there. But if you close yourself off to all of that, you close yourself off to your humanity. You close yourself off to hope. You no longer are going to build new friendships or forge new relationships. You're not going to have new experiences. A lot of what makes us human is the exact same thing that makes us victims. And so I decided, okay, you know what? If someone cons me, and I'm sure that more people will try to con me now after I've written this book, they'll say, oh, that know-it-all who thinks (laughs) thinks she's better than me. I'll show her a thing or two. I'll take her down a notch. Um, You know what? So be it. It's It's a price that I'm willing to pay in order to retain that hopeful aspect of my individuality.
0: Maria, the last thing I want to ask you about is the number one piece of advice that you give people. Um, You suggest that we understand how bad we are and go on to state that in a strange way that makes you better because you will try to find more signs to verify whether or not you're accurate. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Why, Why do we need to understand how bad we are?
3: Well, I think that otherwise we become complacent and overconfident the more you think that this could never happen to you, the more likely it is to happen to you because you are so confident that you're immune that you're not going to spot the same signs that someone who is a little bit less sure of him or herself would see. So, for instance, there's a con artist, and I steal this quote from David Moore's account of the con artists from 1940, The Big Con, which is wonderful if you haven't read it. But um, he quotes a con artist as saying, Um, Something along the lines of the New Yorker is the best sucker there is. He thinks himself so wise that he loves to be taken because New Yorkers think we're so sophisticated, they end up being perfect marks because you can get them on that. Con artists Mm -hmm. themselves become perfect marks. So con artists can get conned because they are so confident that it will never happen to them, that they don't see it for what it is. They see it as something totally different because I can't get conned. This is not a con. It's this kind of truism, but that's exactly what happens. It's this just completely vicious cycle. And so knowing our shortcomings, knowing, okay, I cannot tell if someone is lying, trusting that a little bit less I think you will start looking for more external pieces of validation and support. Instead of saying, because I know you're not lying to me, you're not lying. You'll say, okay, I think you're not lying to me, but let me just Google that.
0: So <laughs> <laughs> we can in touch with our vulnerabilities a little bit more exactly, intimately.
3: Exactly.
0: Maria Konnikova, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today. Your books are remarkable. For more about what Maria Konnikova is up to, or to read uh, quite a lot of her articles, go to her website, mariakonnikova.com. This is the 11th anniversary of Design Matters. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
2: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Mark Dudley. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.
1: You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down.